welcome to Revolutionary Women. My name is Tess Silverman. Women around the world are constantly creating ways to make a difference in their communities, and today's guest is no exception. As founder and CEO of Indigo River, Dina Prastos, AIA, is the first waterfront architect, trailblazing a new category in the industry. Indigo River is a women-owned transdisciplinary design firm focused on progressive waterfront architecture, resiliency, and climate adaptation. A leading authority in New York Harbor and beyond, the firm specializes in climate adaptation through waterfront solutions that seamlessly transcend boundaries, guiding and executing projects from ideation through final construction and operations. Waterfront architect, civil engineer, futurist, climate adaptation expert, entrepreneur, and creative original, Dina is driven to transform the built world at the water's edge. With transdisciplinary and progressive views, she is fueled by the overlapping of design, technology, and nature. Dina is a licensed architect with a graduate degree in civil engineering. Born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska, she deeply appreciates nature and humankind's ability to design, build, and create infrastructure in some of the world's harshest conditions. Dina is an experienced leader of innovative leading projects around the world, directing infrastructure construction, marine engineering, and the design of waterfront architecture. This experience has given her the tools to navigate the firm's diverse client work with her unique vision and competency in construction, engineering, and waterfront architecture. As a one-stop shop for solutions at the water's edge, Indigo River works on notable projects around New York Harbor, including East Side Coastal Resiliency in Manhattan, Robert De Niro's Wildflower Studios in Astoria, River Ring in Williamsburg, and the Harlem River Greenway in East Harlem. Before starting Indigo River, Dina worked at DCAK MSA Architecture and Engineering as the Director of Project Management and Business Development, McLaren Engineering Group as a Senior Project Manager and the Conti Group. Dina earned her Bachelor of Architecture at New Jersey Institute of Technology, where she subsequently completed a graduate degree in civil engineering. At NJIT, she was a Division I soccer player. After gaining valuable experience in the industry, she went to Harvard Business School's leading professional service firm's executive education program. She serves on the National Council of Architectural Registration Board's Futures Collaborative. In 2021, she joined the AIA Resilience and Adaptation Advisory Group, and in 2022, she was asked to join AIA's YAF Summit 30, Mission 2130. The summit seeks to respond to critical issues present in the profession, namely to address challenges the architecture profession will face in the next century, focusing on architecture, society, and our planet. She also serves on her local planning board in historic Grandview in Hudson, New York. Hi, Dina. Welcome to Revolutionary Woman. How are you this afternoon? I'm doing well, Tess. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming on the show. Okay, so I have a bunch of questions, so let's get started. So you grew up in Anchorage, Alaska. Never been to, I've never been there. So what was it like growing up for you in Anchorage? So on the one hand, I'll, I'll share that certainly the winters are long and dark and cold. However, uh, there is a particular beauty and kind of a, a magical nature to Alaska with the northern lights and mm. the endless summers, and it's really unparalleled in beauty. And uh, as kids, we, you know, would go out and play outside all summer, and it's, it wouldn't get dark, and it seemed like the longest days ever, and it's it's truly a, a rich memory to carry with me. That is so cool. I mean, I think the only place I've seen um, or at least have experienced, um, you know, 
like that I guess the day being or at least the sun not going down so so quickly is was in when I was in Iceland like maybe 25 oh, years yeah. ago and it, it went during I think it was March or April and it did not get dark at all until like 11 <laughs> p.m. it didn't even start to get dark till 11 and I was like what is this? You know, so I never experienced anything like that. So I can't even imagine, and I'm dying to see the Northern Lights. So that's so cool that you were that you grew up in that environment. Um, so were you always drawn to nature, and was your family also drawn to nature like you? Yeah, I, I think just part of our childhood, like every single weekend of the summer, we would go camping or hiking or fishing or we'd be out in nature and out in nature in Alaska is, I, I mean, I grew up in Anchorage, which is a city of, you know, at the time, 350,000 people, but you mm. drive 15 minutes out of town and it's just untouched natural wonder that no one's ever kind of developed there and you can understand what the what the natural habitat does and and acts and when you encounter it, it feels very different than when you encounter kind of nature in an urban environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but throughout my, my childhood, we, we spend a lot of time in nature and truly appreciate the bounty it has to offer. That's awesome. So, Dina, you grew up with three brothers and you also grew up with three boys next door. How did it, <laughs> how did it feel being surrounded by boys growing up? And did you ever feel excluded or did they include you with whatever they were up to so i I have have two brothers and yes three boys next door that we Uh, grew up and it was funny because our my parents would very strategically and deliberately the summer would come school would end and the cable the tv would be pulled we would not have connectivity and so the the expectation was that we spent our time outdoors and we were Uh very active whether we were you know, playing kickball in a cul-de-sac or playing a pickup game of soccer or Uh fishing or exploring. We have a stream in our backyard. So there was always a lot to do and just at our fingertips uh, right outside. And so I I never felt like, um, I I think, a a traditional girl in that I didn't, I wasn't playing with Barbies. I was playing with my my brothers and the boys next door and it Mm -hmm. might be G.I. Joe's or Mm -hmm. Make Believe or whatever it was, but it was, it was the childhood that I had and it was surrounded by, by by boys. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, so what do you think um, your parents taught you about life? What life lessons have you learned from them? So I, never really felt uh, an intimidation that I feel many of my peer kind of women in the industry of, you know, being in a male dominated industry have felt because I I feel my, certainly my childhood, but also my upbringing, um, anything that a boy or a man could do, I mean, particularly mentally, um, the expectation was that a woman could do it too. And that Mm -hmm. it it wasn't, there was no inferiority. And um, I didn't grow up with kind of a chip on my shoulder in that sense that I've uh, since witnessed within uh, uh, certainly male-dominated industries. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think on, on that hand, I, I had just a, a different vantage in general. In Alaska also, it is a more male-dominated culture. There, I think at one point there was, you know, eight to one men mm-hmm. to women. So it's just yeah. um, the kind of ruggedness of the, the land and nature and the historical gold mining and the industry that was there. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's... I, I just think inherent in my upbringing was being surrounded by men, but not feeling different for it. Got it. Wow. Okay. So, so you finished your undergraduate degree in architecture, but I read that engineering and construction intimidated you. How so? 
So when I finished architecture, I, I had done very well in my classes and I just I, I wanted to get started right away kind of designing things, which I, I didn't realize at the time. No one does fresh mm. out of school. But where I felt uh, in my the critiques that happen within architecture when you're in studio, uh, I felt like I didn't have a full understanding or grasp on the more technical side and the more structural side of what I was doing. And mm-hmm. that's um, I, I think now looking back, that's natural for many students. But I graduated at a time in 2007, 2008, when the economy kind of Mm. quickly changed and the opportunity in the workforce was to kind of go in and be a low-level CAD jockey. And I knew that's not something I wanted. So I turned the other way and thought, let me double down on an area that I feel uncomfortable in Mm -hmm. and and become more comfortable in it. So I I got a graduate degree in civil engineering Mm -hmm. immediately after my undergrad. And even when I finished my undergrad, I'm sorry, even when I finished my graduate degree, I wanted a more practical understanding. So I had mm-hmm. kind of the, des- the design background and I had the more technical background now. And I, I felt comfortable in an office environment, in a studio environment, in a desk environment. But I didn't feel like I had the practical understanding of when to apply my knowledge and in what ways, meaning mm-hmm. specifically why, why one material is chosen over another or why mm-hmm. one detail is chosen over another. And so I really wanted to be uh, kind of in the field and in the construction zone to hear what the conversations were happening at the ground level uh, to help shape uh, and come full circle to understand as a designer mm-hmm. what the thought process really is, um, understanding how things are built and why they're built the way that they are. That's really interesting. So, I mean, growing up, did you ever have, were you always attracted to figuring out how things worked or how things were built? Yes, I, from a young age, if there was something that could be taken apart and put back together, that was kind of a natural, <laughs> natural approach to try and not to break it, but to try and understand how it worked and uh-huh. why it worked the way it did and how, if it could be improved, how to improve it. And so that, I, again, I think uh, credit to my childhood, mm-hmm. uh, much of the way that my family operates and my parents and my brothers was not to just, you know, take things for granted, to really break them down and understand them and their components and how uh, they came to be. And so right. that I think has permeated my entire kind of career as well is uh-huh. to understand, you know, what, how things are put together and, and how they could be made better as well. Okay. Okay. So let's get into it. So you are the founder of Indigo River. What is Indigo River about and what does your role entail? Sure. Uh, Indigo River is a studio that is focused on climate adaptation and we are a women-owned studio. I founded it in 2018, and we have become a leading authority within New York Harbor, uh, Mm -hmm. as well as outside of New York. Mm -hmm. And the company specializes in progressive waterfront architecture, Mm -hmm. resiliency, and climate adaptation through waterfront solutions. So we look to regularly transcend boundaries of what is nature, what is man-made, and what the disciplines are within our team. So we don't necessarily have a traditional, you know, all architecture, architect staff, or all engineering, you know, civil engineering staff. We have many different disciplines that come together and collaborate. So we have certainly a few traditional architects, a few planners, environmental planners, naval architects that focus really on floating things, Mm. uh, as well as a professional engineer diver, a geotechnical engineer that looks at soil mechanics, a Mm -hmm. structural engineer, marine and coastal engineers. We really truly have many different disciplines that are all focusing together on the waterfront and on creating solutions that can adapt with a changing climate. That's amazing. Okay, so how do you 
or how are your designs or projects, how do they impact the environment? So that's a great question. And one thing I'll kind of chalk it up first to talking a little bit about maybe sustainability and resiliency mm -hmm. and their difference and where we focus within that space. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, if you ask kind of what is the difference between sustainability and resiliency, they often are kind of misused interchangeably, but mm -hmm. really they have an inverse relationship in that sustainability is the, the built world, mankind's impact on the environment. And there are mm -hmm. a lot of firms that focus on that, you know, what are the carbon emissions? What are, you know, how are we impacting the environment? Mm -hmm. Whereas resiliency is really looking at what the environment's impact, particularly with a changing climate, what the environment's impact is on the built world. Mm -hmm. And so we focus a lot more in that space. So certainly the two are interconnected. And if you think about projects that are built from scratch and mm -hmm. if they're built poorly and have to be rebuilt, what a misuse of materials that is and a kind of a waste in terms of the uh, the carbon cost and the transportation and the time and the money and, and everything that needs to be redone. So certainly sustainability is a part of it. Right. But we're often looking much more at the environment's impact on the built world. And much of our work is infrastructure and particularly mm. waterfront infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the natural forces found on the water, uh, certainly there are, you know, there's sea level rise, which is a, you know, great vulnerability that we're keenly aware of and in, involved in every conversation for every project, but there's also storm surge and runoff and in different ways, even just within a normal tide cycle that nature is acting and there are different forces acting on the infrastructure that we design. And so we're keenly aware of kind of what, certainly what our impact is on the environment, but mm -hmm. even more so what the environment's impact is on our designs. So when you, um, okay, I love that answer. And so you were saying sustainability and resiliency. Now, do you put more focus in one more than the other when you design your projects? Or is it, uh, is it basically like, you know, you design something and then you go into the whole sustainability, resiliency part of it? So I, I would say between the two, we focus a little bit more heavily within the resiliency space, but okay. at large, when we're talking about climate adaptation, the two are inextricably linked. So okay. there's no real, you know, divorcing one from the other. Mm -hmm. And for us, it's it's really inherent in our process from the very beginning. If we can get involved at, you know, prior to the, the typical architecture contract starts with a program and a site, and we like to get involved even before that often enough to understand if a program is well suited for a site or if the site mm. is well suited for the program because some of the very early broad strokes decisions have incredibly large impacts on the sustainability and resiliency efforts throughout the rest of the life of the project. Mm. Um, so we get involved as early as we can and it's in, it, kind of throughout our entire process we are thinking about both sustainability and resiliency but mm -hmm. particularly more, more focused in terms of what we're designing, the environment's impact just by the function of working on one of our most vulnerable zones mm -hmm. um, and vulnerable typologies being on the waterfront and exposed to, you know, directly to sea level rise, as well yeah. as a number of other natural disasters and hazards, hurricanes and storms and things that it's just a part of our process every step of the way. Yeah. Okay. Interested that you mentioned all of the climate change changes going on. So with that, so how do you determine or when you when you started when you start a project and you you design or you think of the materials that you're going to use does it ever get affected by um you know whatever is going on in the waterfront 
Um, I'm, I'm thinking of like what you were saying, the sea level rising. And I mean, do you then like pivot at some point and say, wait, maybe that doesn't, that's not going to work? Or do you just say, okay, well, let's see if this works and then we'll pivot? All the time. No, it's an iterative process. And so kind of one of our very early on uh, studies that we'll do will uh, try to understand historically. I mean, it's not often that we have a virgin site that's never been developed in the, the New York Harbor area. Mm-hmm. So we'll look kind of historically at what what did occur on the site before. What were the previous structures? What mm. was the intent of them? What were they designed for in terms of loading? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's just a very early due diligence study. And then we sit down with the client very early on to understand really not only what their programming goals are, but what the the goals are in terms of resiliency and climate adaptation. If the life of the intended the intended design life of the project is 20 years, that's very different than 50 years mm-hmm. in terms of the criteria that we'll establish to design the project for. So right. it could be that we we sit down early on and we talk with the client about uh, you know designing to the year 2050, right. with the understanding that 2050 the the structure will need to be replaced or upkept or maintained in a different way or mm-hmm. added to. Right. Um, whereas if the, the design life goes to 2075, mm-hmm. it's a very different approach early on in what the structure is, what the anticipated loading requirements are. And, and our, our, our means to navigate that, we really do look to get client buy-in early on so that we know and we have an aligned sense of what the goals for the project are. Okay. Um, so what do you think has been the biggest misconception about designing waterfront architecture with regard to? Uh, well, it's funny because if you would have asked me 10 years ago what, and, and now I am, and I call myself a waterfront architect, but 10 years ago, that wasn't a title that I was familiar <laughs> with, or I, I think anyone was familiar with. And, and if you would have asked me then what a waterfront architect was, I probably would have kind of ignorantly said, you know, someone who designs, you know, waterfront homes and uh-huh. with views or on beaches or something. And maybe that's a piece of it. Uh-huh. But really, when I talk about waterfront architecture, I'm, I'm talking about a different, largely a different scale of architecture, and it's typically not buildings. It is true infrastructure, whether it is a bulkhead or a seawall or mm. a riprap or a ventman or a breakwater. And so there's so many different typologies of what is built in the water. And historically, mm-hmm. much of it has been really focused on through the engineering lens of problem solving, but not necessarily as an architect thinks through the design and through the different options of different Mm. ways to design things and different forms to design them in. And so our team, as I mentioned before, is very multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. We have many different backgrounds and there are excellent engineers on our team that can, you know, solve a problem, uh, whether very quickly or or with high quality. But the architects in the team are really kind of stretching what that problem solving process looks like Mm -hmm. and helping to set and establish different parameters than kind of the run of the mill marine engineering firms are. Mm. Okay. Great, thank you. Um, so as a female entrepreneur, did you ever experience any negative feedback while you were creating your firm? <laughs> All the time, unfortunately. <laughs> I hate, I hate to say it, but oh it's my a gosh. Oh, wow. I, um, I have a business partner, and he has been a, a rock and a wonderful business partner to have. Mm-hmm. But I remember very early on going to meetings where he introduced me as his business, business partner. And it, it wouldn't be, you know, 20 minutes after being introduced that I would I would get kind of a, 
a sense that I, I wasn't, I mean, the respect is earned certainly, but I, w- I would feel the, the weight of the room shift um, mm. in my partner's favor in, in, in areas that were, you know, really my strength. And it wow. was, um, I mean, my partner has always been very good about reestablishing equilibrium and uh-huh. giving credit where credit is due, but right. to read the room of other people who are just meeting us and to feel that um, kind of lack of confidence on their part uh, mm-hmm. certainly can be discouraging. And mm-hmm. it's not certainly not the first time I felt it kind of throughout my career. Again, as I mentioned, in the male dominated industry, yeah. I'm not yeah. necessarily intimidated by it, but I certainly still feel it. So how, how did you handle something like that? So everyone has a different response. Um, I feel like successful women who have navigated male-dominated industries um, have have different methods. But at the end of the day, what works for me and what I you know sleep best at night knowing is that my work really truly does and can stand for itself. And so mm. I try not to take things personally, and mm-hmm. I try to put my energy into work itself rather than managing perceptions, which might not always be the right answer, but Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. what I found uh, works for me is to really put my effort and my energy into my work and let my work stand and speak for itself. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I read that Indigo River is celebrating its fifth year in business. Congratulations. That's, that's, That's huge. And, Thank and, you. Yes, very exciting time for us. That's really cool. So, do you think that there are more women becoming involved in this industry, or not enough? Uh, absolutely. I, I, there's certainly an uptick in the trends in women in the industry, and and I think women in the workforce in general. Looking at some trends in the pandemic highlighted a lot mm. of uh, both negative and positive trends. But just to understand what the landscape looks like and what our trajectory is. Uh, kind of presenting itself to be. Certainly, there are more women in the industry. I don't believe that uh, we have enough yet, and mm-hmm. certainly not enough at the senior leadership levels. And it's it. uh, a hard path to navigate, especially with balancing family, and that's understood. I, I, I am appreciative of organizations that support women developing their careers within the workforce. I think there's a lot of good being done right now, but um, it is a systemic kind of injustice that's yeah. transpired, and that is a slow course correction that's taking place. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a little too slow, you know. So <laughs> a little too slow, yeah. um, and I'm hoping it'll it'll just get <laughs> somewhere down the line. It'll get better. Um, so who would you credit for where you are now? Oh, many people. <laughs> certainly, I mean, certainly my, my parents and my husband, just uh, unwavering support throughout my journey, but also my business partner and our team members. We have grown in large part because of our team and the individuals that we have hired and the the challenges that they take on and, and face and are successful in. And so it's, uh, I, I mean, I think any any success that is attributed to me really is a reflection of the people that I've surrounded myself with. Okay. That's great. And so going forward, do you have personal goals or is there something you haven't yet done that you would like to do? So we had a very exciting week this week and I couldn't hardly contain myself yesterday when the end of day came. So we are certainly in our in our well in our sixth year now but we celebrated a five year anniversary in the last week and we have our annual kind of company meeting where everyone participates and gives feedback and we set our goals for the next year. And so that's all well and exciting and and generally things that we do every year, but to sort of pass our goals is always very kind of inspiring and uh, motivating. But Mm -hmm. in addition to that, I recently met with Mayor Adams of New York City to talk about floating cities as a concept for New York City. And so that's 
really in its infancy, but super excited and, and honored to kind of be a seat at the table and having these conversations uh, for the future of New York City. I love that. Oh, my gosh. That's really huge. <laughs> I like that. That's that's Thank amazing. You. Well, good luck with that one. Um, so what are your goals for the community you're involved in? Multifold. So certainly uh, our work and our projects, how they impact uh, the environment and the communities that they're in. Mm-hmm. I think a, a big part of kind of who I am and what I do is uh, – understanding my path and the challenges that I faced and trying to correct and uh, make easier the path of those that are following me. So particularly women in business and women in architecture. Uh, But beyond that, a vision for the future that we can be better than we are currently. So there is a better future than we have at present and that we have the power to make it so. So our role in our company um, really is asserting our agency as design professionals to not only protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public, but really looking at how that extends and relates to the planet mm-hmm. and even more specifically to the profession within the built environment. Um, so that's, you know, beginning with the waterfront where nature meets man-made, but mm-hmm. expanding and asserting our agency in, in different ways in terms of how that manifests. Do you see your firm um, like creating or, or basically creating projects internationally as well or would you like that too we we do and we have we've uh i mean different different types of projects that we've worked on include marinas and port facilities and so we've worked on uh, marinas in canada marinas in the middle east uh, and so we we certainly already are another area that we worked in and are looking to continue expanding in uh even internationally has to do with true climate assessments to understand some of our built infrastructure as it is and what vulnerabilities it has mm-hmm. and then what what recommendations we can make to improve it. Um, and, and often that's that comes in a, a menu of different options of uh, cost-benefit analyses to understand what the different improvements are, what the intended life cycles are, mm-hmm. and what the return on the investment is. Okay, great. Um, so if anyone wanted to know more about you and Indigo River, how would they go about it? So, uh, we, I mean, we have our website, indigoriver.com. We're active on LinkedIn and on Instagram. And so, I, I mean, reach out to us through any of those channels, and we are um, certainly willing and happy to engage in, in conversation. Great. Um, is there anything you would like to say to my listeners? So, uh, one thing I'll say that I, I feel has helped me throughout my career is that if you're working on something exciting that you really care about, mm-hmm you don't have to be pushed and the vision will pull you. And so that's mm. something that's helped me when I see that I'm getting caught up in minutia of, uh, you know, pulled into details and things that are not, uh, you know, it's necessary to step back and gain perspective on what's really pulling me and where that's taking me. And so not getting caught in the day to day, but stepping back and gaining perspective into what the, what the true vision is and where really that you feel the satisfaction from your work is derived from. Okay. Um, if you had one thing to change that you wish you had done years ago, what would it be? Oh, good question. Um, you know, it's a hard question because I feel like any anything that I could say that could have been construed as a mistake mm-hmm. um, is something that I've learned from and shaped me into who I am. I might say starting earlier, I don't know mm-hmm. that I would have been ready to launch, but right. um, I, I feel like that's something that you never feel ready. So yeah. it, 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 it can't hurt and to have more confidence in your abilities and certainly um conviction to take action 
Okay. And my last question is, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? I think it would be along those same lines of to, to have the conviction and the confidence and the courage to get started um, out on my own. I had a lot of unfortunate uh, work environments and kind of toxic work environments early mm. in my career that in part, again, I've learned from it's mm-hmm. as valuable as learning as what you want to do is also learning what you don't want to do or what's unacceptable. Right. Um, but I think even with the kind of core values that I've had um, that are intrinsic to me and who I am, uh, I, I could have started and gone off on my own earlier. Mm, okay. Well, Dina, thank you so much for sharing your story and your life with me and my listeners. Um, I am so excited for what's to come for um, Indigo River, uh, especially with regards to New York and, and floating cities. I, I love that idea. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I know, you, it, I, I know it's a long, long ways away, but it's still in infancy. But, you know, please keep me posted with that. And um, Absolutely. I really love how you've taken the helm on this firm and how you're really marrying sustainability and resiliency is so important, especially nowadays. And I love that you've made it so cohesive, you know, that that it really needs to be that way going forward. Um, So congratulations on your fifth year, now going on sixth. And, um, you know, yeah, definitely be be proud that you have this, you know, you created this firm to make a big difference out there and, and you're doing it. That's amazing. So thank you, Tess. And thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great day. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Bye. That's our show for today. I've posted more information about Dina Prostos on RevWoman.com. Thank you for listening. And I hope you'll tune in every Thursday for another episode of Revolutionary Woman. You can listen to Revolutionary Woman on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Just a little note, I've launched a Patreon account to support the show. All proceeds will go to producing and editing the episodes to give my poor husband a break for being my personal IT and production department. He wrote this. The address is patreon.com slash revwoman.